Well, tonight we'll finish up Genesis chapter 5, so if you'll turn to Genesis 5, we'll pick up in verse 21, and as I promised, we'll finish the rest of these antediluvian patriarchs tonight, those that are responsible, really, for the line that will eventually bring forth the Lord Jesus himself. And that will end tonight with Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Before we get there, a couple of very interesting characters, and ones that, when you really look at them, uh, there's a reason that Scripture speaks of the faith of Enoch. And it does so not in one New Testament book, but in two New Testament books. And so uh, this amazing picture, uh, really a preview, if you will, of what may in fact be our next step on that timeline of prophetic things. A little preview of the rapture tonight in the life of Enoch. And so would you join me and let's pray. And we'll pick up in verse 21 here in Genesis 5. Father, we are so grateful. We have the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and King. And Lord, your word declares to those of us that there will be some that will be alive and remain when you take your church home. And Lord, we believe that that could indeed be us. And so with that great expectancy, Lord, imminently we await your return. Lord, and we want to be busy about our Father's business. And so tonight as we study your word, would you make it alive to us? Help us to hear and know and understand and grow from it. God, that it wouldn't be just words on a page, it would be life to us, that it would interject uh, your glory into our, our, our existence while we're still here on this earth, Lord. So we thank you uh, for the pictures that we'll see tonight of just exactly how good you are to us, and pray that you bless us now as we study in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 21 here in Genesis 5, and we'll finish up chapter 5 before we move on to chapter 6 next week. Now remember that the life of Noah uh, really will take uh, multiple chapters, chapters 6 through 10, uh, kind of are, are the life of Noah. But we find him beginning uh, here in this chapter, in chapter 5. And so, verse 21, Genesis 5, Enoch lived for 65 years and begot Methuselah. And so again, we're continuing kind of these these toldaths, this, this genealogy, if you will, uh, a picture of how we can trace all the way back uh, from New Testament times all the way to, to Adam himself. And so these genealogies faithfully preserved. Uh, I want to remind you, we'll be doing actually a very special service uh, the first Thursday night uh, in the month of January. We have an opportunity, you'll be seeing some video announcements to that end. Um, we actually have Josh McDowell coming, and if you know Josh, he's been around for a very, very, very long time. Uh, one of the books that was used in my life as an early Christian was Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, it's still a classic. It's been edited several times, uh, but Josh is actually going to be here with the Lodez Scroll. Uh, it is a Torah scroll. Um, it's about 500 and some odd years old now. It's the second oldest Torah scroll in existence in the world. Um, he's actually going to have it on display right down here. You're actually going to be able to touch it, read it, and he's going to teach from it. 
on the authority of Scripture. And so one of the books, obviously, in a Torah scroll, which is the first five books of Moses, is the book of Genesis. And so you're actually going to get to be taught from uh, a scroll that was around about the time of the Reformation. And so going to be a great night. That'll be a Thursday night. That's uh, the first, I believe it's the 7th of January. And so here Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years and had sons and daughters. And so we're told each of these times that there were multiple generations that came from each one of these patriarchs. So uh, I've seen all kinds of extrapolations of the data that's contained in the book of Genesis within the genealogy of genealogies of these pre-flood or these antediluvian uh, patriarchs, these, these men that you can trace uh, the lineage of Jesus to. Uh, and some of them go as high as the, the population of the world uh, prior to the flood, before the world is destroyed, could have been as much as a billion people. Uh, whether that's true or not, I can't tell you, but I know this. When you live for a thousand years and you have sons and daughters, and everyone has sons and daughters, um, there's going to be a lot of children that will be born in a fairly short period of time. And if you look at our world population, when I was in high school, anyone want to take a guess what the population of the world was? Uh, it was less than 4 billion. If you know what it is today, uh, it's heading past 7 billion. Uh, so in a matter of, well, I can't really tell you, it's been like nearly 50 years, but uh, in, in, in that amount of time, the world's population has exploded. Amen? And we live in a time when we do uh, have such things as birth control. Um, they did not. So there were no doubt a lot of children being born to these people who lived a very, very, very long time. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then verse 24, and we'll focus in on this uh, for a majority of our time. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. And so here in the Old Testament, we have the example of what we would call in the New Testament uh, a type of the rapture. It cannot be a full rapture, because in order for the rapture of the church to happen, there's a couple of things that are going to happen now, because Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin, because we are fully redeemed. At that time, they were waiting for the promise. So when Enoch was taken uh, from this earth, he could not receive the fullness of all the things that you and I received because Jesus Christ did not die for all of mankind. And because Enoch was born a man with a sin nature, he got a special treatment by God. And so he spent some time uh, along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, I, I'm sure, but he was removed from this earth. And so a picture, if you will, uh, of what we would call the harpazo or the rapturo in Latin, the rapture. Verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And you're going to notice that there are actually two of each of these guys. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah uh, lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. And Lamech lived uh, 182 years and had a son and he called his name Noah. And so now we have uh, Noah, the godly patriarch that will be uh, the one patriarch that will last from before the flood 
till after the flood, along with his family, eight in total. And so Noah, and this one will comfort us, saying of him concerning our work and the toil of our hands, uh, because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so there's a unique prophecy about Noah that's given here, that he is actually going to be somehow attached to uh, the reverse of the curse, if you want to look at it that way. And of course, we know the reverse of that curse came when Jesus Christ died for our sins. Amen? Because I was once lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. I was dead in my trespasses and sins and he hath made us alive. So the curse itself, though it pertained to this earth and, and all things of it, we have been freed from that curse. We've been freed from the curse of the, the, the law itself. For we're no longer under the law but under grace, as Paul said. Uh, it is in fact the lineage of Jesus that's in view in this prophecy. And after he begot Noah, Lamech lived for 595 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Lamech were uh, 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so uh, the amazing case, if you will, uh, of of this man Enoch. Now, if you look, and you can actually see it, if you look at chapter 4 and you look at verses 17 and 18, and then chapter 5 and you look at verses 18 and 25, you're going to see that there were not one but two Enochs. There were not one but two Lamechs, and they are not the same person. Though they have the same name, which is very similar to our world, our day and time, there are names that are fairly common. That was true then. And you have to remember that language was a fairly new invention. And so whatever language it was that they were speaking at that time, um, certainly those names would have carried over. And if you have people living for nearly a thousand years, you can kind of expect that after a while people are going to run out of names for their kids. So they started naming people after their aunts, their uncles, their cousins, their grandfathers and such. And that was the case uh, with both Enoch, Enoch and Lamech. You can see uh, that they were born to different... Cain bore an Enoch, and Jared bore an Enoch, and Methuselah bore a Lamech, and Methusahel uh, also bore a Lamech. And they are, so they're different people, though they have the same name. Sometimes people get them confused and think that this is just a continuation, but it's literally a different set uh, of progenitors here. So when you think of Enoch and you think of his great testimony, one of the things that we have to look at is actually the New Testament in order to understand exactly why Enoch is such an important character in the Old Testament. Because you just read all there is to know about him. People say, well, you know, know, Enoch from the Old Testament. That's actually not how we understand a vast majority of what's known about Enoch. It actually comes from an apocryphal book, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. If you turn to the book of Jude, so uh, New Testament now, uh, in verse 14, verse 15 of the book of Jude, and it says, And now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, which is exactly what he is, you can count back, so if you just take uh, this particular Enoch, you're going to find that he is the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men saying behold the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints now that's an interesting thing to say about Enoch 
and his prophesying. Because Enoch lived well before the New Testament times, amen? Some 2,500 years at 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 a bare minimum. And so when you think about Enoch and who he is and what he said, um, these words are being attributed to Enoch. Uh, and you have to ask yourself the question, well, where did somebody get those words? Where did they come from? There is an apocryphal book, the book of Enoch, which was not canonized into Scripture, largely because many things in it were very obviously figurative, but there are a couple of passages that were quoted Uh, very specifically about Enoch himself that the New Testament writers chose to include in the New Testament. And so this happens to be one of them, and it happens to be a prophecy of nothing less than the second coming of the Lord. So attributed to Enoch is a prophecy about the second coming of the Lord. In verse 15 there in the book of Jude, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the book of Jude reminds us of these words that were spoken by Enoch and passed down undoubtedly through some oral tradition, but likely through the same type of written tradition as we have the book of Genesis itself. Uh, the apocryphal book of Enoch is is still floating around today, uh, and you can you can still you know get copies of apocryphal writings that has it in it, and you can find this because it's in there, and, and so it's attributed to the prophet himself, and so uh, this this fragment represents the essential content, if you will, of that burden against that generation. And it makes sense when you look at the generation that he is going to leave because it's the generation directly before the flood. Uh, he lives just a few hundred years before the Lord actually brings the flood. Uh, and, and Methuselah obviously uh, is, is going to live almost to, that, to the very flood itself. And he's going to die, which the flood will follow him, just as his name prophesies. Uh, and it's also interesting to me when you think of this particular passage, why... Enoch would get a preview of the second coming and then at the same time himself be a preview of the rapture of the church. That's exactly the order that the New Testament says those events will happen in. So Enoch himself prophesies about the second coming of the Lord because notice what it says attributed to Enoch that behold the Lord comes with Ten thousands of his saints. It doesn't say he comes for, it says with. So very clearly, he's coming back with the saints. And yet Enoch himself never saw death. He didn't die. And so as you and I might be alive today and the trumpet sounds, we would be taken home to heaven. And when the Lord returns to fight that battle that we all would call the battle of Armageddon, that final battle of the last days of the tribulation, uh, who will be coming with the Lord from heaven but ten thousands of his saints and thousands of thousands, millions, perhaps even billions. And so Enoch got a picture of that. Uh, The book of Enoch is actually a very specific part 
uh, of what we would call apocryphal writings. They're called pseudepigrapha. And pseudepigrapha are just those things which are falsely ascribed. We would say someone writing under a pen name. In other words, if someone were to have things attributed to them, but they themselves did not write them, we would say that that's a pen name. Somebody wrote those things and attributed it to someone else. That is what the word pseudepigrapha means. And so when you hear pseudepigraphal writings, this is, this is the book of Enoch is one of those. And, and although most of what was contained in there, certainly fiction, um, they were quoted for a very, 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 very long time. And in fact, until the Council of Laodicea, which is right after the time uh, of Augustine himself, you have all these church fathers continuing to quote, in essence, from this book, the book of Enoch, and very specifically about the things that pertain to the very last days that are contained within it. And so uh, likely there were some things in there that were, that were attributable, attributable to Enoch himself. Um, the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Origen, Tertullian, all of those guys uh, at times gave some credit uh, to this apocryphal book that was supposed to be the record, in essence, of this patriarch, Enoch. And so it was a very important book. And again, until the Council of Laodicea, the, the book was kind of circulated along with those things which we would call scripture. In other words, they were, they were the, the books that we have in our Old Testament primarily. Um, some of you may have actually understood, perhaps you came from a Catholic background, and, and you pull out your Bible and you notice that there's a few extra books in the Old Testament. Uh, if you happen to have a Catholic Bible, you're going to find there's 46 Old Testament books instead of 39. Uh, that's because some of the Apocrypha are, are included in there. Uh, you have the, the rest of Esther added to Esther and the song of the three holy children, uh, Bell and the Dragon, the history of Susanna, uh, Baruch. There are some additional books, First and Second Maccabees. Those are all those types of writings. And so some of them contained historical issues. Some of them were uh, the history of the church as much as it was known at the time. But they were not viewed by the early church fathers as having come directly as, as a result of inspiration. And so... Uh, they're, they're not used by anyone other than the Catholic Church uh, at this time anyway. And then about the time of the Protestant Reformation, there came kind of a renewed interest, partially because they believed at that time that the Lord's return might be near. Uh, Luther was one of those that, that believed that God was about to punish the earth for its sin, and so uh, he was very interested in the book of Enoch, and so there was kind of a a discovery, a rediscovery of this lost text. But most of the book of Enoch kind of falls into that category, and I'm going to associate it with something that's not a direct equivalence, but very much like the Book of Mormon. Uh, there are all kinds of fanciful things within the Book of Mormon, but also quoted within the Book of Mormon, there's actual quotations, robberies of the King James Bible. And so inside of the Book of Mormon, there's actual literal quotations of real scripture. And the same is true for the Book of Enoch. There appears to be some truthful statements buried within uh, that which is primarily a story uh, written by some historical figures in an attempt uh, to make it look like something that was actually from God. So here's a little tip for you. If it sounds strange, sounds too good to be true, be Bereans compare scripture with scripture and when you find something that doesn't sound like God's character make sure that you research it so in the book of Enoch there are a few things in there 
uh, that you, you probably are going to have a tough time with, like a talking rock and a few things like that. So uh, you, you can kind of go, hmm, there's some stuff there that's seemingly like it likely is from God and some things that mm, probably isn't. So as you look at, at Enoch here, uh, we, we have this great testimony of Enoch. Uh, when you look at the book of Hebrews, there's another place that uh, we, we can kind of take a look at his life. And there in the book of Hebrews, uh, you, you find this picture uh, because he's quoted there. And in verse 5 in Hebrews 11, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and it was and was not found because God had taken him. So a lot of what we know um, actually comes from the New Testament and comes from the book of Enoch. For he was taken, before he was taken, he had this testimony. So here's the testimony of Enoch. According to the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews, that he pleased God. And then this incredible verse that applies to you and I, It applies to all of us, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, is a direct reference to the faith of Enoch. In other words, Enoch was a man of faith. He walked with God and then was not. So it's a beautiful picture for us of God dealing with mankind very consistently because he honored faith in Enoch. In other words, his history is a history of faith. What is mostly said about him was he was a man of faith. And so when you start reading the the writings of the Apostle Paul, when you, you delve into like Galatians 5 and it says then walk in the Spirit, and do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This war that's going on there, it, it's a picture really of looking back. God's always asked us to walk by faith. God has always asked us to walk with him by faith. There hasn't been another way in the Old Testament times. There's been the way, and that's the way of faith. And so faith was what God honored in the Old Testament. That's what God honored before the flood. He honored faith. So when we say we're children of faith, we're the children of a very, very, very long generation of people who have walked with God by faith. That faith is the same faith that Enoch had. It's the same faith that Abraham had. It's the faith to believe God, to take him at his word, that what he says is true, and that he has always desired that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There wasn't an Old Testament way that God dealt with us in that sense. He's always asked us to believe him by faith. And so Enoch is a beautiful picture uh, of this man who walked by faith. He's going to give the the same type of of an announcement the writer of Hebrews is about Abraham. Uh, He's going to do that about Moses. And so these people, sometimes people say, well, you know, I, I, I think they had a different kind. Of, no, they had the same kind of faith. They believed God. Faith is faith. And this type of faith is the faith that leads to salvation. This is a type of faith that trusts God, believes God, uh, recognizes his word. And though it was a different time frame and it was a different way that 
ultimately that was accounted unto them because that faith was accounted to them as righteousness. Jesus had not yet died, but it afforded them the same care of God. And so as they waited in faith, they waited believing that Messiah would come, and the moment Jesus said it is finished to tell us die, he first descended to us and had set those captives free and released them from that bondage that they were, that they were held under in paradise. Instead of being in torment, uh, they're, they're relaxing with Lazarus. Uh, the rich man is in torment there in uh, Luke chapter 16. Interestingly enough, the prophet Elijah is a similar picture. If you want to turn over to 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, we can pick up in verse 9 there. Because 25 centuries later, you have the prophet Elijah comes along. And he also is a man of faith. And we know a whole bunch about Elijah. Amen? If you travel with us and and we go to Israel together, we'll go actually to the top of Mount Carmel. There's a, a monument there, the Carmelite. Uh, order has a monastery there and uh, you you can go to this place there's this giant statue standing out in this kind of pseudo olive grove and a little bit of you know leftover vegetation that's probably been there for a while but there's this cave that's the cave of elijah it is supposedly the cave uh, that's mentioned here this cave wherein uh, he's taken up in a whirlwind and in verse 9 uh, here in Second Kings chapter 2. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, uh, Ask what I may do for you before I'm taking a, taken away from you. And Elisha said, uh, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And so he said, You have asked a hard thing. And nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them and Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha cried out, said, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more and he took of his, his own clothes and tore them into two pieces and he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, so Elijah's clothes drop off, and he grabs his mantle and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And so, another picture, very, very similar. Now, to me, it's interesting when you start to look at these two lives and kind of what they represent ultimately, and how they equate to what we as the church are also rather waiting for. You see, these men were waiting in faith for the Lord to do what only the Lord could do. You have Elijah, you have Enoch, you have the church, and there are a number of others that when we get through the Old, the Old Testament and into the New and then through the New Testament, you go, hmm, there's, there's kind of some similarities here. The Apostle John got a vision of heaven. He was lifted up. The Apostle Paul got a vision of heaven. He was lifted up into the heaven of heavens. Ultimately comes back and says, the things that I've seen I can't tell you for they are too great. Uh, But these two saints, both Elijah and Enoch, seem to have uh, kind of a a thing that maybe you and I can look back, and it it goes to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and what we call the rapture of the church, also 1 Corinthians 15. 
And there in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says this in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. What was it that Enoch said? That the Lord will bring with him ten thousands of thousands. So Enoch is saying the same thing that the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That the Lord one day is going to return with the saints from heaven. For if we believe that Jesus, he will, he will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Who are those that were asleep? Elijah, Moses, Abraham, and all the Old Testament saints, and every last person who's died in grace since the Lord Jesus cried out from the cross that is finished and has now died in his grace because the Apostle Paul told us there, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So we know where those who have gone before us have, have gone to, when they leave this earth, they've gone to heaven right now. Elijah was taken up. Jesus emptied Sheol. So these guys are coming back from heaven. Notice what it goes on to say and continues. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with, notice this, circle it, Them. With them, to meet them in the clouds, and to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord, and therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, what was that that was said about this prophecy that Enoch spoke? That's quoted in the book of Jude. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. He's talking about his return. So Enoch got a preview of the very last days. Very special character. As Paul would write about these very things in 1 Corinthians 15, speaks of this particular generation, the generations that were mankind uh, before the flood, speaks specifically, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 through 23, for since by man came death. We know who that is, amen? His name's Adam. For in Adam all have sinned, amen? By man also came the resurrection of the dead. That man is the man Christ Jesus, who happens to also be God. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
but each one in his own order. Christ and the first fruits. There it is. There's another mention of those ten thousands, those ones that have gone on before. And afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, that same group, it's this picture uh, of, of the things that we now know as the very last days. And he'll go on in verses 51 and 53, For behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Sleep is a, is a metaphor, it's, it's a picture of death. Enoch didn't sleep. Elijah didn't sleep. There's going to be a group of believers who are going to be alive and remain on this earth who are not going to sleep. They're going to be caught up together with them in the air and forever they will be with the Lord. It might be us. Isn't that crazy? It might be us. It could be you and I. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. And so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then it shall be brought to pass the saying that death is swallowed up in victory. Amen? That's the whole goal. It's to make us like Jesus. It's to bring us home to our, our rightful home. This, this world's not your home. I don't know if you know that or not. But if you're in Christ Jesus, this is not your home. Your, your home is being worked on right now, for in your Father's house are many mansions. And Jesus went to prepare a place for you, for us, for all of us. And he is coming again to receive us unto himself, so that where he is, we might be also. Enoch got a preview of that. Amen? Amen. It's supposed to comfort us. You know, some people think, well, there's this Old Testament vengeful God that just went around telling everybody, well, I want you to kill so-and-so and kill so-and-so and wipe them out and don't leave anybody alive. And that, You know, the poor Midianites. You know, we, we, have, we have this Old Testament view versus this New Testament view, but my Bible clearly says that God's plan has always been to take us home. His plan has always been that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, the very thing that Peter would write. There was not a different plan in that sense. Grace has always been it. Faith has always been it. It has been salvation resulting by grace through faith that's taken people to heaven since Adam. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Because your Bible is very clear on this. It's obscured in the Old Testament in some ways because of the ways that people related to God. But the faith, it's always taken faith to see God. It's always taking God's grace to, to get past our sin. It's always taking a covering of that sin, as we're going to see as we see the life of Noah. You're going to see all these typologies, these incredible pictures, these windows into the heart of God. Interestingly enough, Elijah also kind of provides us with a backdrop uh, of, you know, Maybe Elijah went home to heaven because he's coming back for a very specific purpose, too. You, you probably remember 
that the book of Revelation pretty clearly tells us there in chapter 11 that there's going to be a couple of witnesses that are going to come back during the tribulation uh, that ultimately are going to wander around Jerusalem pre- preaching Jesus and they're going to be left for dead in the streets, but they're going to get up. They're the amazing. We know who one of them is. Matter of fact, the book of Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, in chapter 4 says this, which is the reason why today when a Passover Seder is held, there's a place that's always left for Elijah. Uh, it, it comes from the Old Testament book of Malachi in verses 4 through 6 and says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So for the Jewish person looking for Messiah, the reason that they're setting a place setting for Elijah is he's supposed to come back right before Messiah comes. And so they set a place setting for him. It's like, what's going to happen? So what do the children do? They go look for Elijah. They'll go to the door. Is Elijah here? Why? Because he was taken to heaven and he's coming back. And I believe, well, I know that he's at least one of the two witnesses. Jesus actually went so far as to equate the same spirit of Elijah to John the Baptist. So that same presence, that same power uh, would be in him. Uh, and, and so as the, the Jewish people are celebrating Passover, they're looking for Elijah. Uh, I, I can tell you this, Elijah is coming back. The first time he's coming back with the Lord, he's going to meet meet us in the air who are alive and remain, or we're going to get there if we happen to go by what the world thinks is natural causes, but what I call is the date stamp that's on the bottom of your feet because it's been appointed unto you one time to die and then judgment. So you're, you're going to, God's got a little barcode on the bottom. You're not going a day soon nor a day late. But when you go, you're coming back just like Elijah. And when you finally get back here and we come back to fight that final battle, because remember, the angels in heaven cry out, who is worthy to, to unloose the scrolls? And there is none worthy, but to say, worthy is the lamb. And that lamb comes back and on his thigh is the name, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he comes back on this incredible white horse to, to fight this battle and to deal a death blow once and for all. Uh, to Satan into his kingdom, to defeat the Antichrist, the dragon, to slay them, throw them in the pit. Can you imagine coming back with him? That's going to be awesome. Enoch got a little tiny preview. And now we know a few other things about that time. And we should be really excited about it. Because you never know when it might happen. People will ask me, well, what good is Bible prophecy? It excites the believer to know that God has a plan for every last day that you're on this earth. I feel sorry for people that don't believe that Bible prophecy is something that we should engage in. Because Bible prophecy gives you fuel for today. I I know the Lord Jesus is coming again. And so every day matters. Every second you're on this earth matters to the Lord. Because he has a divine time stamp And believe it or not, I don't know whether you've ever thought of this or not, there's actually going to be a last person who's going to come to faith in Christ and then the age of grace is going to be over. 
It's called the times of the Gentiles. Until the times of the Gentiles are complete. In other words, there's going to be God's age of grace is going to come to a close. There's going to, I, I don't know who it is. And I'm not suggesting you go around and ask people, are you the last person to get saved? But, but I can tell you this, it's going to be a glorious day for the church when that last person comes to faith in Christ because the next thing you're going to hear is the trumpet. And then we're going home. Should excite us. We never know what each day brings. But we know where we're going should the Lord start blowing. Amen? Last two here, you have Methuselah and Lamech and then, and then Noah. Verse 25 here in Genesis 5. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived uh, 782 years and had sons and daughters. Can you imagine what his Social Security account looked like? Like, had a work life of 800 years. And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. And again, remember that his name literally means uh, uh, death shall bring or his death shall bring. And so when he dies, the flood does in fact come. Um, But to me, that's more a picture of the Lord's long-suffering than anything else. So here's this guy that lives to be almost a thousand years old. And his name means his death shall bring. And, and it's a picture of God's grace that he went with all the struggles of mankind for nearly a thousand years before he allows Methuselah to come home. I kind of feel sorry for Methuselah. It's like, no, you got to stay. I'm being gracious. Can't bring you home yet because I'm being gracious. I'm being long-suffering. It, it, it's that Second Peter chapter 3, the Lord's not slack concerning his promises, as some can, can, would consider slackness. It's not like God is just asleep or he sees evil and go, well, that evil doesn't matter. Of course, the evil matters. But he's long-suffering towards us and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so even before the flood, God's allowing Methuselah to live almost a thousand years is kind of a picture of his grace and his mercy. Here's old Methuselah. He's like, can I just go? And I'll tell you something, and and I don't want to overemphasize this point, but I have talked to an awful lot of people that are getting near the end of their life who love the Lord, and they're like mad that the doctors are keeping them alive. It's like, could you just let me go? It's like, there is nothing here for me. It's like my home's in heaven, and when someone genuinely knows the Lord and they've lived a wonderful, effective kingdom life on this earth, they are ready to go see Jesus. Imagine poor Methuselah. He's like near a thousand years old. It's like, could I go now? It's like, could you give me cancer or something? I'm ready. Now, we don't know what he thought, but I know this. God's long-suffering, and he's not willing that any should perish. And he was not willing before the flood that any should perish. And people perish now for the same reason that they perished then, that they love darkness, and they will not come to the light. Because remember, anyone who would repent could get on the ark, in the ark. But there were only eight out of all the people that Noah knew, out of all of his kinfolk, 
One of the sad things about the ark, and we'll see this when we get there, one of the sad things about the ark is Noah had a whole lot of other kids. He had a bunch of family. And they all chose evil. No one will ever face God and say, why did you make me not choose you? Each one stands and each one falls because of your own personal faith, your own personal belief, and your own personal love for God or your own personal lack of love for God. God's not going to put you in a situation to where you're just going to be forced to perish. Anyone who perishes will one day stand before God and say, this is right. This is what I chose. But Methuselah is also a picture of God having some limits. You you see, God's not going to ride this grace train forever. And some of you say, well, what are you saying? What I'm saying is God has a limit to the amount of sin that he's going to allow to continue to go and affect this world. And I personally happen to believe we're awfully close to the end of that period of the age of grace. And that's not meant to upset. That's not meant to scare anybody. It's not meant to say to you tonight that I know that the Lord Jesus is going to come maybe before you get home. But the fact of the matter is there are no things that need to happen on the prophetic timeline for the Lord to return for his church. Notice what I just said, for the Lord to return for his church. There is nothing that has to happen. There's not some piece of information that needs to be delivered to Israel. There's nothing about the land. Those things all pertain to the tribulation. Those things all pertain to the very last dealings that God has with mankind and specifically Israel. But as far as the church, we could go home right now. That's why we need to be ready. That's why we need to have our our lights on, our lamps trimmed, filled with oil. Because in the hour that you think not, the bridegroom comes. Amen? Amen. You, you see, Methuselah, though, though he died before his own father, even though he was the oldest man in the Bible, the reason he did so is because God took his son home. God took his son home. And then he did exactly what he said he would do. He destroyed the world. He overflowed it with water. People don't like it when when pastors say those kind of things. It's like, oh, that's that vengeful God. No, that's that very patient God that allowed for thousands of years, probably at a minimum, nearly 1,700 years of mankind going completely crazy so that it was said about man that their thoughts were continually evil. But the moment God was done and he took Methuselah home, he was done. So don't get in that group of people that thinks you can kind of spit on the grace of God. 
God's been gracious and God's been merciful and he's always going to be gracious and always going to be merciful. It is true, his character will always be gracious. His character will always be merciful. But there's going to come a point in time when he's actually going to act on the promises which says, I'm coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, that's the other side. Because grace has that side too. In other words, he's not playing. He actually is holy. He actually is righteous. And Methuselah is a picture of that. This is a picture of God's justice and judgment in the Old Testament as well. So not only do you have his grace and mercy, you have his justice and his judgment. And we'll delve more more into this when we get to the flood. He's long-suffering towards godless people today. Some people mistake his long-suffering for him liking what they're doing. Don't ever get yourself in the place where you think because God has not punished you yet that he approves of your sin. He is simply choosing to be long-suffering and kind, loving, gentle, gracious, but he still hates sin. And he punishes sin. Now, praise God for those of us in Christ. He punishes even our sin in grace. Amen? He deals with his grace, kids, differently than he does with those who don't know him. He still is gracious, but because that grace has saved you, you're now punished as a child of God instead of a rebel who does not know him. He has a very different plan for those who do not know him. Your Bible is clear on this. Those who do not know him will spend eternity separated from him and they will suffer his wrath. But your Bible declares very plainly to us, those of us who know him will not ever suffer his wrath. For he has appointed us not unto wrath, but unto salvation. But you can still get a pretty good whooping from Jesus. So don't flirt with sin. God hates sin. He loves us, the sinner, but he is no fan of sinful behavior. And the reason we can see that in the Old Testament is what he allows to happen. Think of it. Now again, we do not know. We're not told. There's no number in here that says there were this many people on the earth when the flood came. But I can guarantee you it was millions, at least. Had to be. Just simple mathematics would get you to there. And so how much do you think God hates sin? That he would not pollute the world with the sin after the flood. In other words, the judgment came on the earth because of sin, and there were eight people in total who survive his judgment. God is serious about sin. Don't ever think he's not. Praise him for his grace every day, amen? But flee sin. Resist sin. Allow God to heal your sin. Allow God to deal with your sin if he needs to deal with it because you want him to deal with it while you are still here. You do not want to face God with your sin. You don't want to take it with you, in other words. 
So this is a picture of how God also is true to his word. And so verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, called his name Noah, saying, another prophecy, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And the only comfort that we have in all of that is that for by grace we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. Amen? That's the way the curse is dealt with. Because the wages of sin is still death, by the way. But the free gift of God is life eternal in Christ Jesus. So the answer to this is the line of Shem and Ham and Japheth, the, the children of Noah. Noah's name means rest. And there's so much symbolism. We'll get into Noah uh, when, we, when we take these chapters that are almost extensively about him, or exclusively, excuse me, about him. But when you look at it in chapters 6 through 10, we just have this incredible picture of his life, what he did, how he rested in the face of tremendous adversity and these children. And, and we're told these three names, I believe, because they are the righteous ones that ultimately end up on the, on the ark itself. Uh, there's no reason for us to believe that Noah didn't have other children, but these are the children that, that are going to make it to the other side of, of God destroying the earth. I will also remind you that the, the Mormon church... Uh, took these three names and tried to make them hermeneutically, in other words, interpret them to mean three different skin colors, that there was kind of dark and black and fair. And one of the reasons that until 1987, uh, if you were a a black citizen uh, anywhere in the world, if you were an African American, if you had dark skin, if you were a Native American, you were you were born with a dark skin color. One of the reasons you could not attain to the priesthood in the Mormon Church is they believed that these were the cursed skin colors. It gives you another reason to make sure you read your Bible because your Bible doesn't tell you that. That came from the Book of Mormon, which was written uh, in 1830. It was codified by Brigham Young in 1847 and turned into a curse on people of color. So make sure you're a student of Scripture because my God created us all in his image. The God of the Bible says that every last one of us has the same exact value, so much so that Jesus died for every last living, breathing soul who's ever existed. Amen? So these people in the Bible that got a little preview of what's to come, Enoch, Elijah, Philip the Evangelist, Paul, John, Jesus, and one day, us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you that you are just and kind and fair and you love us, Lord, every last one of us. Lord, every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, one day we are all going to feast at your banqueting table together uh, as you planned all along. 
Lord, no division, no strife, no hatred. Lord, we'll see each other for the way you see us, Lord, as, as your precious children uh, gathered around that incredible marriage supper of the Lamb. And in the meantime, would we as your church uh, live out that incredible life even now? God, would you help us to, to run counter to our culture? Be ready. Uh, as you, Jesus, said there in Matthew 24, for in an hour that we do not expect, uh, you will come. We, we know that countdown clock is ticking. As Paul wrote to the church at Rome there in Romans 11, we know the fullness of the times of the Gentiles. is, is The clock's winding down. And so help us to be uh, those who, who present your love, Lord, to the world around us. Lord, the only answer, the answer of faith. And so we bless you. We thank you for these pictures, these windows uh, into what was. And we are so grateful for what is. And we look forward to what is to come. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?